to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. So, the main theme of chapters 40 to 66 is the salvation that God is to bring to his exiled people immediately in Babylon, ultimately from the bondage of Satan. The main theme is God's salvation. The main figure in these chapters 40 to 66 is, of course, God's servant, the servant of Jehovah, through whom he is going to bring salvation to his people. Now, to that figure of God's servant, we are introduced in chapter 41. For example, uh, in verse 2, um, we read how God asks, Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? And this is probably one of the earliest references to the servant of Jehovah. We see in chapter 41, verse 8, a reference to Israel as the servant of Jehovah. That is, that God is going to have one who will be his servant to deliver his people. But from chapter 42, the true servant of Jehovah emerges from the shadows in which he has so far been, and we hear in verses 1 to 9, the first of these four servant songs. Let me just point out where the others are to you so that you know where they are. First in chapter 42, 1 to 9. The second in chapter 49, from around verse 3. You'll notice in... um, 49, he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. And uh, then he goes on to describe the Lord's servant. Uh, Thirdly, in chapter 50, um, and verse 10, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Uh, Here again in chapter 50, you get this picture of uh, the servant of Jehovah. But supremely in chapter 52 at the end uh, and into chapter 53 throughout the whole chapter, Verse 13 of chapter 52, Behold, my servant will act wisely. And then you get this amazing picture uh, of the servant of Jehovah. Well, now this first servant song in chapter 42 begins with a marked contrast to what you find at the end of chapter 41. In the last verse of chapter 41, you get the same beginning as the first of 42. 
And in each case, it really ought to be. It's a strange thing that the NIV translates the two differently. It, they both begin, behold, or look, or see. And the first behold, in verse 29 and 41, draws attention to the false gods who amount to nothing, in whom there is no salvation. Although Israel and Judah had so often turned to them and trusted in them, Isaiah holds them up to ridicule at the end of chapter 41. Behold, he says, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. But the second, behold, draws our attention to Jehovah's servant. The first behold shows us the false gods whom Jehovah despises. They are as nothing, he says. The second behold draws our attention to Jehovah's true servant in whom he delights, who will be the instrument of his people's salvation. Now it is God who is speaking at the beginning of chapter 42, hear or behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I, will, I delight, I will put my spirit on him and so on. And he tells us certain things about the servant of Jehovah. And you will be bound to see overtones in all of these of the Lord Jesus Christ and to hear quotations uh, that we read in the New Testament. So much of this passage is quoted in the New Testament. And uh, that, of course, is the final answer for biblical believers to the question, who is it that the prophet here is speaking about? So, in the first place, he raises the question with us, who is this figure of Jehovah's servant, the instrument of salvation? The second thing he turns to deal with is what he is like. What is the description of this servant of Jehovah? And the third question is, what has he come to do? Who is he? What is he like? And what has he come to do? First of all, then, who is he? Now you will notice a number of things, and there is just so much truth, especially in verse 1, that we could spend a very long time uh, probing into it. You notice in the first place that God tells us he is my servant. Now, as I was saying a moment ago, it is God who is speaking. And what that tells us is that the key element in the character of this person, of the servant of Jehovah, is that he is dedicated to and devoted to Jehovah's will. When we come across this phrase in Isaiah, as we do many times, it's a really important thing to grasp what the essential nature of being Jehovah's servant means. Because it's a strange thing, in many ways, for the word for a slave 
to be taken up and used of the second person of the Trinity. And yet that's exactly what is happening. He is Jehovah's servant and he addresses Israel, points to his son and says, Behold, here is my servant. He is one who is dedicated and devoted to Jehovah's will. Now that is what makes the Lord Jesus Christ in the supreme sense the servant of Jehovah who is the one figure who has ever been known to appear in history who is devoted and dedicated to the will of Jehovah. And the answer is of course the Son of God himself. If you turn over to the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 10, you will see there the uh, reference in verse 5 that the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews makes. And here he is describing from a different source the servant of Jehovah. Um, and this comes, of course, from the Psalms. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, O God. Now, this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking, you see. This is what makes him the servant of Jehovah. This is what Jehovah longs for and was waiting for. Not for sacrifice and offering. Not for burnt offering and sin offering. He was waiting for one who would take a body in which he would live devoted and dedicated to the will of Jehovah. I am come to do your will, O my God. Now you will remember that Jesus himself quite unselfconsciously speaks about that to his disciples. He says, my meat when he comes to them after he has spoken to the woman at the well of Samaria. And they say to him, Master, have you had anything to eat? And he says, I have meat to eat that you know nothing about in some ways amongst the saddest verses in the Bible, if you think of it. Here is the Lord Jesus saying, what feeds his soul, they know almost nothing about. He says, I have meat to eat that you know nothing about. And they prove that they don't know anything about it because they say to each other, has somebody brought him something to eat privately? And he says, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Now that's the language of the servant of Jehovah. So we read in Paul's exposition of our Lord's coming into the world in Philippians 2 that he did not snatch at the glory that was rightfully his but he came and took upon him the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of man and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. 
Now this is our Lord Jesus as the servant of Jehovah. He is the one who finds his soul's delight in the will of the Father. You notice the second thing that God tells us about him. He is the one Jehovah upholds. He is the one who is dedicated and devoted to the Father's will. He is the one Jehovah upholds. Here is my servant whom I uphold. Now that already gives us some insight into what the servant of Jehovah was going to do, what he was going to be like. It's evident that he needed to be upheld. Here is Jehovah's servant who is going to come as the instrument of salvation, but he is going to need to be upheld in this ministry. Now, that's probably the first hint that we have in Isaiah that Jesus is going to be a suffering servant. Because do you remember the need that he had to be upheld was associated with the assaults upon his soul from Satan and from sin and all that that was to mean to him. You remember the two occasions when heaven had to send support to uphold him after the temptation when Satan left him and angels came and ministered to him and in Gethsemane the angels came and ministered to him. Have you ever thought why they came and ministered to him? That is heaven fulfilling this prophecy of Isaiah, you see. He is my servant whom I uphold and keep. Here's the third thing. He is not only the one who is devoted and dedicated to the will of Jehovah. He is the one Jehovah upholds. Do you notice? He is the one Jehovah has chosen. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one. Now, that's one of the biblical descriptions of the Lord Jesus, you see. Do you remember in 1 Peter, for example, when Peter is speaking about the head cornerstone who is Christ? He is despised by men, but chosen of God and precious. Now the Lord Jesus is the chosen one of God. When we use that word, you know, chosen of God, the elect of God, we generally speak of his own people. And of course that is right. Paul speaks again and again of the elect. Jesus spoke about the elect. Even the elect will be deceived. And they are the chosen of God. You have not chosen me. I have chosen you, he says. But you see, in another sense, the chosen one is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is God's elect in the truest sense. And we are chosen by God in Christ. You remember how Paul says in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now you see what God has done. He has chosen his servant, the one 
who is his only begotten son and he has united a people to the Lord Jesus and we are chosen in him. That is the election of which scripture speaks. It's a chosen in him election. Fourth thing, do you notice, is he is not only Jehovah's servant that is devoted to his will, the one whom Jehovah upholds, the one whom Jehovah chooses. He is the one in the fourth place in whom Jehovah delights. Now these are all descriptions of the Lord Jesus. Nothing could express Jehovah's relationship to his servant so clearly as this, what he is saying. It's the language of love. It's language that appears in the Song of Solomon. He is the beloved of Jehovah. Now, you don't need very much knowledge of Scripture to see where all this pours out in the New Testament, do you? In the baptism and anointing of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you remember how heaven opens and God says, This is my beloved Son, the Son of my love, in whom I am well pleased or delighted. Hear him. He is the servant of Jehovah in whom Jehovah delights. And if you're wondering about that pouring out of the Spirit, the descent of the dove on the Lord Jesus, here it is in the next phrase of verse 1. He is my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my Spirit upon him. Now that is just the picture that was so gloriously fulfilled, as you will remember, in uh, Matthew's Gospel, in uh, chapter 3 at the end of the chapter, where we read, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, in whom I delight. With him I am well pleased. And you will realize, of course, that the anointing of the Holy Spirit was a symbol of the power of God for service. That is the picture of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. God always grants that empowering of the Holy Spirit in order to serve his will. That's a very important thing, incidentally, when we are talking about the power of the Spirit and wanting the power of the Spirit, the only reason God ever gives his Holy Spirit and anoints with his Holy Spirit is to serve his will, not ours, and to exalt his glory, which he points out at the end of this servant's song, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. 
And that is what the Holy Spirit is given for. Now with such an equipment, the servant of Jehovah goes out to bring salvation to the nations. You notice at the end of verse 1, it says he will bring justice to the nations. And that's uh, a word which many people think needs a wider kind of understanding than our idea of justice. It probably is something more approaching the salvation of God that he is going to bring to the nations. So that is who he is. He is the one who is devoted to Jehovah's will. He is the one whom Jehovah upholds. He is the one whom Jehovah chooses. He is the one in whom Jehovah delights. And he is the one whom Jehovah empowers for his service. I want to underline again that Jehovah still empowers for service those who have bowed their lives and wills utterly to his will. Now look at the second issue that he raises, that is, what is the servant of Jehovah like? And here, let me remind you again, we are reading of the Lord Jesus. In verse 2, he will not shout or cry or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice, that is salvation, on the earth. So you notice the things that he will be characterized by. What is he like? He will be characterized by humility and lowliness and by meekness and compassion. The servant of Jehovah described in this passage is really contrasted to the figure we read about in chapter 41, who of course is in the first place Cyrus, the king of Persia, who came to ride roughshod over all his enemies and drive them ruthlessly before him. Now, notice the contrast between Cyrus who in the historical and political realm was Jehovah's servant to release his people out of Babylon. And this picture of the servant par excellence, who is Jehovah's servant to release his people from their sin? He will not shout or cry out. That is, he is not loud or boisterous or raise his voice in the streets. You know the kind of thing that we mean by that. I think probably the nearest uh, English equivalent would be loud-mouthed. Do you know what we mean when we talk about somebody being loud-mouthed? Well, this is the kind of equivalent. He will not be like that. There is a humility, a meekness, and a gentleness about the servant of Jehovah. Now notice how this is described in verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick 
he will not snuff out. Now, these are two symbols of brokenness, weakness of those who have in some sense been broken or hurt in all the pressures of life. And the natural thing to do with a reed that has in some sense been bruised and is hanging over, you know, we would say something that had been half broken already is just to break it off. And when a wick, another familiar thing in the ancient world, was flickering and ready to die out, as you would think, not burning brightly, the natural thing was to snuff it out. And the picture that Isaiah is giving us from God is that the servant of Jehovah, when he finds those who are wounded or bruised by the harshness of life, deals gently with them. There's an amazing wealth of uh, picture here of the servant of the Lord and it's not confined just to what Jesus himself was like if you turn over in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2 you will see that this is a picture of the servant of the Lord in every generation including ourselves notice 2 Timothy 2.24 and the Lord's servant. Now the point about the Lord's servant is that he needs more and more to resemble the servant par excellence. And the Lord's servant, that's Timothy, for example, and all who are Timothy's successors, like you and me. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. But the mark of the servant of the Lord is that very gentleness because he has come to bring healing and blessing and not destruction. So the Lord Jesus brings this ministry of encouragement where even there is the flickering of a wick. He fans it that it may glow. Where he sees a bent reed he supports it that it may gain strength. Now, that's a whole ministry, my brothers and sisters, to other people that you and I greatly need. The easiest thing to do, especially for some of us, is to put down the weak, whether with our tongues or with our actions. But the Christ-like thing to do is to strengthen the weak, to encourage those who are broken and hurt, and to be gentle with the gentleness 
of Christ. O hope of every contrite heart we sang, O joy of all the meek, to those who fall how kind thou art, how good to those who seek. You know, we need to allow our souls to be bathed in the truth of this, that when we come to the same Lord Jesus Christ, his great work in us, his healing and grace and blessing, of course he sometimes brings us pain because he wants to heal us properly. But his purpose, his ministry, is one of gentleness and grace and healing. We do need to pray that we would be made like him in that. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. You notice he will also be characterized by perseverance, faithfulness. It is described as at the end of verse 3, in faithfulness he will bring forth justice or salvation. He will not falter or be discouraged. Now, interestingly enough, faltering and being discouraged belong to the same family of words as the word for he will not break a bruised reed, he will not snuff out a smoldering wick, he himself will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. So he is characterized by humility, lowliness, meekness, compassion, faithfulness, and perseverance. Here's the last thing, verses 5 to 9. What he will do. Well, you notice where verse 5 begins with the same note that we found in chapter 40. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. That is, God the Creator is coming to call God the Redeemer. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open the eyes that are blind to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. What is he saying? Well, he is saying what he is coming to do is this. He is coming to bring about a new creation. God the Creator is coming as God the Redeemer in the person of the servant of Jehovah, and he will uphold and keep him until he has wrought this work of redemption to open the eyes that are blind to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness 
Now when Jesus stood up in the synagogue, do you remember, he quoted these words which are almost repeated in Isaiah 61 and said, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. What is he saying? He is saying that the Creator God has come into the world in the person of the redeeming servant. And he is going to open the eyes of the blind that they may see the beauty of their Redeemer. He is going to take the captives out of the prison and release them from the dungeon and bring them into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now, of course, that is what the Lord Jesus in his redeeming grace did this is what he will do he will come as the creator and perform a work of redemption as he sets his people free that of course was fulfilled in a physical temporal sense in Babylon just as it had been fulfilled these centuries before in Egypt, when God opened the prison house of Egypt, later he opened the prison house of Babylon. And then, in the coming of his servant, our Lord Jesus Christ, he opened the prison house of Satan, and he set his people free. And this is what he has come to do. But you notice how he is describing at the end of the servant song the great motive that he has in doing it. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Now, that you see in the ultimate sense is why Jehovah chose his son as his perfect servant it was because he had not only a devotion to the father's will he had a zeal for the father's glory and to serve God my dear friends to serve God these are the two greatest qualifications any of us needs a devotion to the will of God and a zeal for the glory of God for the simple reason that God says my glory I will not give to another God is jealous of his glory and if we seek in serving him to rob him of his glory, 
then he will bypass us. That's as sure as we are here this evening. If our secret hidden motive is somehow or other to draw glory to ourselves, then God will bypass us because he will not give his glory to another. You will realize that that has everything to say about two things. First about our motives in Christian service. And secondly, about our methods in Christian service. Our whole methodology in serving God needs to be controlled by this principle. My glory I will not give to another. So anything that draws glory, however subtly, away to me is going to grieve God and he will simply not use us. That's the truth. And in terms of our motive, the only thing that ultimately matters is this. I was reading it again with Alan McCulloch up in Skye at the weekend. Are not zeal for the glory of God and a desire for the salvation of men so far as you know your great motives and chief inducements in entering into this ministry? the presbytery were asking. Have you ever wondered why it is that the glory of God is really the only motive, ultimately, in evangelism? You see, it is not ultimately the condition of the lost which is the ultimate motive for our evangelism. That is a motive, but it's not the ultimate one. The ultimate motive is that somewhere in the world, in the lives of certain people, God is being robbed of his glory. That's what makes evangelism urgent. And a zeal for the glory of God will do for us what it did for Henry Martin when he left these shores and saw people in the east bowing down to an effigy of Muhammad. Now that's unusual, but he saw them doing it. And he said, I could not bear to live if my Lord Jesus were always thus dishonored. Because he had a zeal for the glory of God. And that ultimately is what will give us a fire in our bosom for the salvation of men. Let's pray together. How we long, blessed Lord, to be servants after the pattern and manner 
of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for this picture of him and we long that this mind which was in Christ Jesus might also be in us by your grace. And even although we acknowledge how far we are removed from that picture, we bless you that the Creator, God, who comes to be our Redeemer, is able to do for us far more than we could ever ask or imagine. Do it, Lord, and fill our lives with zeal for your glory. For Jesus' sake. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Reverend Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.